This is the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel, bringing you the best tactical and statistical analysis of Liverpool FC. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Analyzing Anfield, your tactics and analytics podcast, courtesy of the Blood Red channel. I am Josh Williams and I'm joined by Mo Stewart. Mo, it has been a good week, mate. <laughs> it really has. It's funny, like, <clears throat> I keep finding myself just smiling or laughing for apparently no reason. But of course, there is a reason. I mean, <clears throat> we always try to be level-headed on this show. It feels like we say it every week now. But that was a game that was very hard to be level-headed about. It was historically good for us and historically bad for them. And as close to the perfect game as I've almost ever seen. Yeah, it was historically daft as well, I think. It was just absolutely <laughs> crazy, mate. I had no idea that that was going to happen. I had no idea we were going to be close to that, to be honest. Um, we didn't actually do predictions last week. We should have. But if we if we had have done, I think I would have maybe predicted like a, a push a 2-1 Liverpool win. Mm. But for us to, for those who aren't aware, I mean, I don't know where you've been, but Liverpool won 7-0. It's worth repeating. Yeah, it's worth repeating. To be honest, we could spend the next hour just repeating that over and over and over again. To be honest, I think we'll get a fair few hits. Um, But we're going to spend a fair bit of the show talking about that game because it was just nuts. Um, Then probably a little bit of a look towards top four because the landscape does seem to have changed a little bit now. Uh, But yeah, I mean, we'll start with with Man United. I mean, would you say it's it's one of them standard... um, game of two halves or would you say do you resent more to that whatever um to a certain extent yes because in one of those halves we scored six goals but <clears throat> i don't fully buy into the narrative floated by some people who may be clutching at a few straws that man united were the better team in the first half it was an even game in the first half both teams were feeling each other out both teams were able to create opportunities without taking them but I never felt like it was a game where we needed to do much more to win it. I thought we were in it just as much as they were. And then obviously we get the goal just before half time, which allows me to kind of feel more confident in that fact. But it's interesting. I think the team needs a bit of a chat as well, because there was a lot of nervous people when that team dropped and there was no Stefan Bajetic, which by the way, is a massive tip of the cap to the way he's been playing the people are scared that he's not playing against Man United but I I think a lot of people were also nervous about Harvey Elliott I wasn't I was more surprised by Sechich wasn't playing than Harvey was because I think what part of what we said last week about him looking a little bit more like a midfielder in the Wolves game I think there was a stat he spent more time counter-pressing than any other player has done at any time in the game this season. And I saw that stat and I was like, hmm, that's going to be needed against Man United. And it was needed and he was fantastic at it. So a tip of a cap to Klopp there for knowing better than all of us. Uh, and obviously Bacetti came on and got his little cameo and was able to destroy their captain for fun. But I think... It must have been really pleasing. One of the most pleasing things for the manager is he was able to use different players and still get a high level of performance, which tells me that maybe some of his squad 
are coming back to life. Yeah, well, I'm going to roll it back to your first point there, actually. I think it's interesting because I, I found that interesting myself that specifically at half-time, Manchester United, despite being a goal down, the likes of Gary Neville was convinced that it was a great day and I couldn't get my head around it, to be honest. And I think, if I'm honest, I think it stems predominantly from Gary Neville. But it, it comes from like the the Ferguson approach of going to Anfield and there's this... Gary Neville always talks about getting through the first 20 minutes, right? And it's almost a case in his eyes of if you get through the first 20 minutes and you haven't conceded, it's basically a win. And it's there's a bit more to it than that. Um, so I think United were decent in the first half. I do think it was a relatively even game. Either team could have went in at the break with a lead. But... For me, it was absolutely no chance a case of like Liverpool got outplayed or or United with a better team or there was a gap in quality or anything like that. Um, but I've, I've always felt it, it does stem from this this narrative of survive the, survive the first 20 at Anfield. Yeah. Because I think so many people, so many pundits think the first 20 minutes at Anfield is going to be like the first 20 minutes of the second half, to be honest, where you just get absolutely pummeled. Um that didn't happen, and I think it massively impacted Neville's perspective on mm. how United performed. And uh, 100%. I think the thing is about this team, we haven't really been doing that blitzing in the early 20 minutes a lot recently. And it does seem to be that the current profile of the squad, that's the kind of thing that doesn't really seem like a good idea. If we are kind of trying to manage fitness, energy, legs throughout the season, blowing yourself out in the first 20 is probably not a good idea. So doing it in the first 20 of the second half, where you've had a chance to see what their game plan is and how they are planning to attack you, and you can use that to counteract it, makes a lot more sense. And if we're going to keep doing that, then yeah, teams are going to maybe come into halftime with a full sense of security, thinking, oh, well, it's nil-nil, or we're only one down, we're still in this. But by the same token, we have to remember the last big game at Anfield, where we conceded a goal immediately after halftime. So I can understand Manchester United being confident that they could still get back into the game. However, they did not. <laughs> That's a bit of an understatement, to be honest. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, that, that first half, according to Understat, you know, United United's first shot, well, first major shot was, was about 26 minutes in. Uh, before that, they had like a one one shot worth like no three xg, which is just not even a shot, really, is it? Um, so I, I I don't know. I think United played okay first half, but I don't think it was anywhere near this this level of worry and like that. Having said that, I do think going into the second half, I expected it to be a bit more of a game, and I do exp- I do rate Ten Hag's ability to managing games well. I think he's generally pretty good with substitutions and things like that, recognising the problems stuff, but it just it just collapsed for them. Um I mean I'm not even sure how to analyze this. We can't possibly go goal to goal because we'll be here for <laughs> next week. <laughs> no, uh, well one one thing I did notice, <clears throat> particularly with the second, third, and fourth goals, was that it was from counterattacks. It was from them pressing us and us taking advantage of that and getting the space behind. And there's two things about that. Well, three, really. One, 
Teams used to be doing that to us, and they haven't been as much, which is definitely a good thing. Two, that was kind of both teams' game plan to try and draw the other one onto it. And we were successful in a way that they weren't because we kept our intensity. I think that was so key throughout the game. There were so many times where there was a key 50-50 and we won it and we were able to go on the attack. If you lose that, then they could maybe get a shot on goal. But we win it and we go on the attack. And the third thing, during those counterattacks, something I noticed in Wolves as well, we're making so many better decisions. Yeah. So many times previously, we'd be like, oh, look, this looks like a good chance. And then it would waste it because someone would maybe play the wrong pass or they'd overhit a pass. If you think about the appreciation for the pass that Gakpo gave to Salah and then Salah gave back to Gakpo for the third, for example, and even Nunes for, the, for Salah's goal, where he tries to play the right pass to Elliot and it gets blocked out, but he doesn't sit on his laurels. He goes back in and he wins the ball with McTominay, forces the deflection ends up going to Salah. So all this time on the training pitch, you're really starting to see it on in matches. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a fair few goals to choose from, but I, I particularly like the first. Um, and I think it kind of highlights one of the issues attached to Manchester United's tactical approach and how Liverpool kind of picked it apart. Because I think we've said in the past that United are under Ten Hag at least a bit more of a man orientated approach when it comes to pressing and things like that. Each man picks up their opposing player and kind of sticks to him. But one of the issues with the way they do it is Liverpool obviously play with one striker and United play with two centre halves, and those two centre halves stay where they are. So all over the pitch, there's kind of always a free man somewhere, and yeah. most of the time, the free man was Robertson. And uh, Liverpool's ability to find him throughout the game, I thought, was brilliant. Alisson found him so often with just chip balls over the top of Anthony. Um, and I think leading up to this goal, this first goal, Robertson's the free man. Anthony's picking up Van Dijk. Um, Rashford is on Canate. And I think everyone's kind of shuffled over towards Trent's side of the pitch. We find Robertson... And um, Cody Gapo is obviously getting man-marked at this point by Fred. And this this is kind of the product now of man-marking systems, basically, because I think the player who closes down, Robertson, is Dallow. And yeah. the player who ends up in the right-back slot is Fred. Yeah. Fred obviously doesn't know the position that well, tries to read the pass, completely misreads it. And Robertson plays through Gapo, who... Really, I thought really in, in that moment, that first goal, I thought Gakpo really showed exactly what he was when it comes to PSV at times, to be honest. That that cutting in from the, from the left, using your right and finding the far corner, you can tell he's done that for a fair few years, to be honest. And um, I think the way he did that, almost, I, don't, I mean, this is, I'm going to throw in a caveat here, this is not me saying anything to do well, with Firmino's level, but... Caveat away, don't worry. I was going to say, um, Firmino couldn't do that. Just see what I mean. Firmino would not be able to drift towards the left wing like that, kind of darting behind, cut inside, and finish with his right. Firmino just weren't that type of player. So, Gakpo isn't yet on Firmino's level in terms of the whole false nine stuff. He's getting there. But I think it's interesting that we've now got a player who 
can do bits of the false nine stuff so far, but is also just as effective at times if you want to move them to the to the flanks. Yeah, and this is the key to evolving the team, isn't it? It's trying to take most, if not all, of the best parts of the guy you're replacing, but add your own twist to it. I mean, when Giotto yeah. first came into the team and he was replacing Firmino, we were saying similar things. It's like he can do some of the bits, but he also does this as well. And the more players you get in there who can do it that way, it doesn't disrupt the whole flow of the play and doesn't disrupt what everyone else is doing, but it gives you an extra element. And <clears throat> two other things about that goal. One, obviously, technically, Nunes is the one who starts on the left and his move central is what gives Gakpo the space to work with. And again, it's a really good interconnection between the two of them swapping from centre to the left. That happened quite a lot in the night. The other thing, watching that goal reminded me of something one of the Dutch journalists said to me when I was first trying to do some info getting on Gakpo. His favourite player growing up was Thierry Henry. He modelled his game as a little kid on Thierry Henry. That was a Thierry Henry goal, mm. 100%. And if he can start putting them in, oh boy. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting actually because um, last season we saw a little bit of an evolution of sorts when Sadio Mane started playing through the middle. And obviously he's, he, he was a lot better at being a false nine than I thought he was ever going to be. But he also offered the threat in behind if he needed to go the other way. Um, so I think the bottom line is what you want really in that in that front three attack is kind of multifunctional players who are really good receiving the ball to feet, but ideally really good running in behind as well, running the opposite way. Um, I don't think Gapo is quite as quick as someone like a Mane or a Nunes or a Salah, but we saw that he's quick enough to do it at certain points. And, you know, if we get to a point where Nunes is injured or Diaz is out or whatever, I think if we have to use Gapo on the left, maybe Jota through the middle or something like that, we do have a really fluid attack there that players can just play in multiple different spots. Um, apart from potentially Salah, who's probably got that right side completely locked down, really. Mm. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think it's funny. I drew up when Gakpo first signed a kind of like a depth chart of who would play where and who's first choice, second choice. And yeah, there was about three or four options for both the centre and the left and kind of two options for the right. And <clears throat> two are a push, really, because the other option is either Luis Diaz or Ben Doak. And there are yeah. kind of big pros and big cons with both of those. I think maybe going into the future... Doak will become a little bit more of a stronger option there. But for now, we're just going to have to hope that Mo Salah remains a Superman and plays every game. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to come to him a bit later in the episode, actually, but I might as well just do it now. Uh, in terms of Salah, I mean, when he plays like that, mate, he is right up there with the best I've seen. Genuinely, he's absolutely undefendable when he's like that. Uh, I think Manchester City see him every now and then like that, to be honest. He seems to be kind of big game Salah, essentially. But when he plays like that, mate, he is the the closest that the Premier League has seen, in my opinion, to, to Lionel Messi, probably. Um, yeah. Player on the right side, using his left foot, super creative um, in terms of creating for his teammates, but super threatening himself as well. Really good in tight spaces. Opponents can't can't seem to predict what way he's going to go. 
he's just his finishing's as sharp as anything. When he's like that, man, he's, he's he's so hard to defend against. It's impossible. It really is. And <clears throat> I have to say, uh, I did give him some criticism earlier in the season, and I was asking him. In times of trouble, we need our big guys to stand up. And I felt like he hadn't done that. Well, he did that in spades. And he has done that in the last few weeks as well. And you're right. He just could not be defended. And Manchester United put so much time, effort and players into trying to defend him, into trying to foul him, into trying to take him out whatever way they could. And none of it worked. And I used um, the sofa score ratings quite a lot. Recent uh, when I'm doing these shows, just because it's got a good range of all the different stats. Um, they gave Mo Salah 10 out of 10, and they don't give 10 out of 10s very easy. It's very hard to get 10 out of 10. He got 10, not not 9.9, not 9.8, 10. It's a different <laughs> color. It's a different shade of blue. That's how high he was above everybody else on that pitch. But the, one of my favorite things about his performance, not only was he a threat from minute one to minute 97, he was having so much fun, not only terrorizing Manchester United, but he was fun. He was enjoying building the relationships with Nunes and Gakpo. And you can see it not only in the goal celebrations, but sometimes after goal um, shots that didn't lead to a goal, there'd be a pass move between them. And they'd, he'd always kind of look back to give him a thumbs up or give one of them the encouragement. He sees himself a little bit as the daddy of the new front line. And yeah. he's embracing that. And that to me is almost as good as seeing him bang on goals in. Yeah, when he when he's like that, mate, it it does remind you just just how good he is. Like in terms of individuals playing for Liverpool, like forwards and, and players like that, I'm still slightly inclined, I think, to say Luis Suarez is the best individual level that I've seen. But when Salah's like that, mate, he he same level for me. Um, just so special in terms of what he's doing overall on the pitch. Created the most chances for his teammates against Manchester United. Received the most progressive passes. Um, played the most passes into the penalty box. Just such a dangerous player. And I think yeah. um, overall as well, I think if you look at like Liverpool's business since Klopp took charge... See the base every now and then, don't you? About like you know who, who's been the best signing, who's been the best money ball signing, or whatever. And I think there's been points where like with the base well, Van Dyke, but it could be Van Dyke, you know. And there's been times where we've thought Allison and maybe even Robertson because he was just so cheap. But it's Salah. It's the answer, Salah. Mate. It's, it's, it's the number of goals you score. 129 Premier League goals now. Um, never misses a game. Still going now comfortably at the age of 30. He's just an absolute machine. He is. And I think that whole machine element of it is what I like because it gives me hope for the future that we are still going to get to see it. Because as I said, the way he was playing earlier in the season, it kind of gave me some doubts as to whether or not we would be able to see him playing as good as he we wanted to towards the end of his contract. But I mean, the determination within him to prove everybody wrong. And I mean, I I always feel stupid whenever I talk about Salah and like uh, athletic ability or durability because he plays every game and when he takes his shirt off, you can see that he's a very fit man. So <clears throat> I really shouldn't be doubting him. In terms of where he sits in greatest Liverpool players, particularly forward players, I have him above Suarez for two reasons. One, he's done it for longer. And two, 
Two. Go on, go on. I think I think Suarez gets elevated because of the weaknesses of the team around him. I think Suarez gets elevated because he had to carry the team a lot of times. I think if you put them two together, Salah's carrying that team just as well. In fact, probably better. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, in, in Liverpool history, I have him above above Suarez comfortably because he's done he's done more for the club. I, I just mean more in terms of individual level at any kind of given moment or given period or whatever. That the level that Suarez delivered it is still mind blowing to me. Like he, 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 I'm going to get it up now just for the sake of uh, the arguments. But that that season that he had at Liverpool, his final season, was still to this day absolutely ridiculous. Like he scored thirty-one Premier League goals, not a single penalty, not one penalty, mate, and twelve assists. Um, for the team that weren't that great. So I, I mean, it's they're both ridiculous. You know, to throw it in there. There's no, there's no outright winner when it comes no. to this, but. I just remember like, that laughing when I used to watch Suarez. He, he was that good. He is. And I mean, I don't want to say it like I'm trying to downplay what he did because he was fantastic. My last po- word on that point, though, doing it in your last or third season at the club is a lot easier than doing it in your first, like Salah did. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. But if, if we look at the, um, the Manchester United set up then for Liverpool, I thought it was interesting because Liverpool kind of adopted a bit of a under-the-radar shape, I, I felt, and it's been touched on a little bit on Twitter. Um, but obviously, we know Liverpool favoured a 4-3-3, and defensively, it was a 4-3-3 as normal. But with the ball, it kind of looked like a 4-2-2-2, I thought, um, because Henderson kind of... I think it was yeah Henderson dropped in alongside Fabinho and formed like a bit of a double pivot, and Gakpo dropped in alongside Elliot and formed another pair in like offensive midfield, and then further up, you had split strikers in Nunes and Salah wide, high, playing on the shoulder of of Manchester United's defenders. but I think it really helped Liverpool in this game because obviously with Man United being a man-marking team at the minute, um, it caused them issues. You didn't really know who to pick up. Varane was kind of getting dragged out of place. Fred ends up at right back when he conceded the first goal. Um, but I think it did. It, it did. It does two main things for Liverpool. Really, it, it kind of allows for an additional man to get involved in in building moves from the back. Yeah. So you've got an additional presence in the middle almost like a diamond, like a box almost. Um, and on top of that, if you lose the ball in any given moment, you've got an additional presence in the middle of the park to kind of stop that immediate transition. And um, Liverpool did a little bit of this against Newcastle in a 2-0 win. I think it was 2-0. Was it 2-0? Yeah, yeah 2-0 win. Um, did it now against Manchester United. And... I'm not saying it's purely to blame for this, but in that game against two rival competitors, we've scored nine goals and haven't conceded yet. So something is working well, and I do like the way it, it kind of highlights what Gakpo is good at in terms of um, linking the play and coming a bit deeper and maybe carrying the ball over large distances, which he's good at. It lets Nunes and Salah threaten in behind. It lets Henderson drop deeper alongside Fabinho, or Bessetic drop deeper alongside Fabinho. It allowed Elliot to be a bit more of a connecting player. 
Um, so it's, it's an assistant that will want to keep an eye on that. I think so, because particularly when you consider those players you mentioned, it allowed everybody to do what they like to do on a football pitch and do it well. Like if you saw Fabinho was able to come out and step out to win the ball, he wasn't kind of running 20 yards to try and press and getting passed around. He was coming out only when he knew he could be effective. And that little gate that him and Henderson put across the centre line was so important, I think, because once you have that security, it allows everything else in front of you to develop. And you can take a few more risks if you're Elliot, if you know you've got those two in position behind you. And Elliot, as the link man between Salah, but also between Gakpo centrally, I think was really key to this game. because, And it's going to be key going forward because teams are still obviously going to try to stop us getting the ball to Salah. That's going to always be at the top of one of their priority lists. And if you have Elliot in there, in that, trying to get in between defensive lines, and he's always looking for Salah, that's going to be such a benefit to us going forward, I think. But the weird thing about what we did, it was very much like I say, a 4 2 The outlier, though, was Robertson because of how much space they were giving him time and time again. If you yeah. end up looking at like the average positions, Robertson's like the third highest player. <laughs> he's almost up there alongside Darwin Nunes. So he was he was good enough, obviously, to take advantage of what Man United gave. But Man United made quite a few mistakes even before I think they got onto the pitch in terms of their tactical and their personnel. For example, I expected uh, Wan-Bissaka to play. I think he's a good defensive uh, fullback and he's played well at Anfield before. I expected Jaden Sancho to play. Uh, he played very well against us in the reverse game. Uh, and then they had Valt Vekos playing in the number 10 role and they had their number 10, who also happens to be their captain, playing out wide. And <laughs> after all of the times we've seen Liverpool Man United games and the battle between Trent and Rashford and how we're always talking about it, and one of them always wins. And that battle pretty much always decides the games, if you think about it. And they tapped out. They said, no, we're not going to go in for it. And they put Rashford up front. And like you say, we had Canate and Van Dijk. And Rashford's great. He's in flying form. But those two are two of the best centre-backs in the league. And they didn't really give him a sniff. So Manchester United didn't use their resources to the best of their ability. And Liverpool absolutely maximised theirs. Yeah, I think you're spot on. Um, I agree with you. I think you've just said there. I was quite surprised to see that Rashford wasn't um, deployed against Trent, considering what he's done in the past to him. Uh, how that is kind of a weak spot for Liverpool this season, and what Rashford has done from that side of the pitch. I think he going into the game, he'd scored 17 goals in his previous 19 appearances, and most of them came from that side of the pitch. Obviously, Veghorst as a number 10 was curious. Um, and what we touched on earlier in terms of Robertson always being a free man and Liverpool just finding them every time when they were building from the back. I think overall, to be honest, we could probably throw out there that it was a bit of a, a masterclass from Liverpool's perspective tactically. And it was, um, I suppose, a fair few errors from Manchester United that kind of spiralled really and resulted in, in a 7-0 defeat. Um, you mentioned Elliot there. I can't remember what your take was on this. I don't know where you stand on this, but it's been an ongoing theme talking about whether Elliot is a, is a midfielder 
or a visa forward, has this game impacted your perspective in any way? Because personally, despite the struggles we we encountered a few a few months ago, and he was called to remove Elliot from the middle and things like that, I still think Elliot is a number eight for Liverpool, and I think that's where he will end up for Liverpool. Um, and always plays some minutes in like Salah's role, maybe or even on the on the other side or on the other wing, but. For me, I don't. I do think he'll become a, a pretty capable number eight for Liverpool, to be honest. Um, and I think this game's probably done him a few favours in reassuring people that he can do that. Yeah, me included. I was very. I was. I wasn't believing, to be honest with you, up until the last two games. I thought all season long. I've haven't really seen how it can work. I can see what he brings to the team in terms of going forward offensively or the link play. And his offensive numbers affecting the game were still high, even early on in the season. But from a defensive point of view, there was a long period of time where it didn't look like it was getting better. And it was a, the kind of problem that we couldn't carry. Some um, pros or cons to any system, risk and reward, some you can wear and you think, okay, the risk and the reward's big enough. With that one, because of where it was on the pitch and what it was affecting, I felt like it was too big. However, these last two games, it really is Wolves of Manchester United. I've seen it. I've seen the improvement in him, not only in being able to affect the ball when he's pressing, but being able to know when to pre- know when he's going to win it. Because that's what he's been doing. He's not been yeah. getting there and not quite getting there. He's been getting there and he's been winning it. And that's the difference. And once you're able to do that, then all of the rewards and all of the fantastic link play, those are all going to come on. I think the next frontier for him, it feels like I'm giving him so much work and he's only 19. <laughs> but I do think he's going to be pivotal for this team going forward. So he's going to need to do it. And he is going to, he probably doesn't need me to tell him, shooting. He needs to get better at shooting because he's not connecting. He's snatching at it a little bit. But the way that he's attacked all of the other tasks he's done so far, I've no doubt that he will get better at that as well. So, yeah, he has very much reassured me in his last couple of games that he can do what we need him to do in that position. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Well, you mentioned uh, there about his, his regaining of the ball. We touched on that, I think, a few months ago, and I think we were a little bit critical in that. Although he puts himself about defensively, he never actually regains it. Um, against Manchester United, he posted a total of five tackles and interceptions. That was the joint most for Liverpool, um, alongside Robertson and Trent. So that bodes well for him. And I think recently, and Klopp's mentioned this a few times, you can tell how made up Klopp is about this stat. But when we played Wolves recently and we beat them 2-0, um, Harvey Elliott in that game registered the most time counter-pressing by a single player in any Premier League match all season, um, which does suggest that he is kind of in the mould of Klopp in terms of um, being a dog without the ball and willing to work and things like that. And I think um, Odegaard is, is a temple for him. I've said that before. I've said that earlier in the season. I think that kind of midfielder for me is what, Elliot should look to become. I think considering he's 19, 
I think he could be seriously good by the time he's about 25. I think he could be like Jack Grealish level good where he's he's seriously influential on the ball and mm. uh, really difficult to stop and makes really good decisions, most incisive passes, keeps the ball in good spaces. Um, and I, I do actually think it's quite interesting that we are linked with Mason Mount because I see Mount as a very similar profile. Um, both can play as a number eight. Both work very hard defensively and both offer similar values and perks when Liverpool have got possession of the ball. Both English, both homegrown, can both play as a 10, can both probably play as a forward. So I see a lot of similarities there. Um, I'm not sure if Elliot should want that transfer to happen, to be honest, but I do think Klopp will probably <laughs> find a way to, to in, in, incorporate them both really somehow. Um, yeah, it, it might be that there are other midf- younger midfielders, particularly homegrown younger midfielders, who might end up getting pushed out if Mount comes. But yeah, I agree 100%. I think there's something in the way that he's developed his game, uh, Mount, that is, that Elliot can definitely find. And Odegaard, you mentioned him before. That's a really interesting comparison because he is now 24. So he is pretty much at that point. And he started. He was signed by Real Madrid, massive tub, when he was 15, just like Harvey Elliott was. And mm-hmm. he spent some time out on loan uh, in the Dutch league, I believe it was. And then he went to Sociedad and he really, really kicked on. And that was when he was about, about the age Harvey Elliott is now. And from that point on, there's been a year-on-year progression that's led to the Odegaard we see now. So Elliot could very easily follow that path. So fingers crossed on that one. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, one thing I did want to touch on, this is analysing Anfield, so it's only fair. When we got hammered by Real Madrid, I touched on how it was a bit of a freak in terms of the scoreline, at least, because Real Madrid were super clinical. Um I think just want to touch on how in this game against Manchester United, Liverpool definitely deserved to win. Liverpool were definitely dominant and all that stuff. But we posted an XG of about 2.8, which is great. Again, that would always, pretty much always deliver you a win uh, if you're creating shots worth that amount. But we scored seven. So that shows that I suppose we just got taken by the wave of Anfield and... um, just supreme confidence, super clinical. We had eight shots on target and scored seven of them. Mm. Doesn't bode well for David Hay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's outstanding I'll, I'll, for Liverpool when it comes to finishing. I won't shed a tear for David Hay. Um, <laughs> it's funny because I was having this conversation with a few other people, Liverpool and Manchester United fans, in the wake of the game. And this is one of those times where maybe XG lets itself down a little bit because it's easy to look at that and think, well, two is a lot less than seven. But the reality is, is that what it actually shows is how infrequently people score from what look like really good chances. For example, Darwin Nunes' goal, his first goal, where he's heading it from about on the line. That has got an XG of 0.48. So that's still less than half. That still means less than half the time someone's misses from there. So when you put it into that context, you're thinking, okay, another example, the 9-0 against Bournemouth early in the season. I looked. That's an XG of 3.3. So, like, getting an XG of 5 
it's really hard. <laughs> like, yeah, no, listen, yeah, you, you will never, I don't think that's necessarily expected goals in itself down and like that, but it's just... Well, I mean, it just in terms of how it's representing what we think about the game. The other thing about our dominance in the game I wanted to bring up is, yeah, we had 18 shots and, yeah, only eight of them were on target. But six of them were in the six-yard box. So yeah. it's not like we're just blaming one of the shots in from here, there and everywhere. We're getting into very good positions where a goal is highly likely, even if it doesn't necessarily make you think it because the numbers are still quite low. And then there's the chances that we missed that were good. Canate's was a very good chance. Robertson in the second half was a very good chance. I mean, we could have had a penalty when I don't know what Shaw was doing to Jota's face, or maybe you watched face off the night before and he fancied a go. <laughs> but the point is, is that even if the two point eight XG might make people think, oh well, maybe Liverpool were a bit lucky, maybe it was a freak result. It's like, no. We no, absolutely no. pulverized them from start to finish. No, I wouldn't say in any way that Liverpool were lucky. That's that's definitely not what I would get at. Um, and just for reference as well, you would never, ever post an expected goal that says you should have scored seven. You know, you would never post anywhere near, anywhere near that. Expected goals is just based on average finishing. It's super average finishing in a, in a day. And if Liverpool score seven from 2.8 XG... It doesn't suggest they were lucky necessarily. It just no. it, it can suggest that they were just super clinical. No, and, that's um, what it is. Like, and yeah. and you look at like for example, both of Gakpo's goals. If you freeze it at the moment he strikes a shot, it's a hard place to score from both of them. But he took them brilliantly. I would say again, Salah's first goal where he gets the deflection and it smashes it off the bar. When you pause it when he's about to hit it, that's a hard place to score from. He's on the edge of the box. There's still a keeper there. So that's probably why some of the values are low. And so why some people are thinking, oh, well, you know, you're not going to score those every time. The thing is, particularly with Gakpo's goals, that was confidence. Like, I think, I don't know who it was who noted it on the commentary, but he didn't look at the goal either time when he finished it. Both times, he knew where the goal was. And that's confidence. Yeah. And the more you have confidence the more you're going to do confident things. And we've seen it. I mean, Gakpo is a perfect example of it. If you look at how he's played in that game compared to some of what we saw early on, when he was a bit unsure of himself, the team was a bit of a mess and it all looked really difficult. I mean, I don't want to kind of go too far on the psychology side of things, but again, if you look at his celebration after the second goal, it wasn't like he was running around going, oh my God, want to go, want to go. It was like, yes, here I am. <laughs> Cody Gakpo. Yeah. That means something. And when you're when you're trying to build up a new young player, trying to integrate someone into the team, that means a lot. Yeah. No, I've I've uh, I, th- I think finishing is, is is a confidence thing a lot of the time. It it really is just kind of like that intangible thing where you just players go on hot streaks, players go on cold streaks. And I did a workshop with uh, with Statsbomb years and years ago now like but at the time the way they introduced the workshop at the time because there was people in the room who were kind of just getting initiated with uh analytics and, and things like that so the way they introduced the workshop at the time was the, sh- the start of the presentation and they showed us something like five or ten goals or something like that and the exercise the way it started was we had a sheet one to ten 
and they made us put in what XG we expected to be attached to each shot. Um, <laughs> and the, the, the reason they did it at the end when they showed the answers and things like that, most people had massively overestimated the values. Yeah. And that's not like that, that. That's based on fact, really. That's based on history. That's based on, you know, 10,000 millions of shots or whatever in the past. Um, and it's 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 just quite surprising to be honest a lot of the time how how little shots go in it's just a, a low scoring sport like say for example Gakpo's first shot uh, sorry Gakpo's first goal where he cuts inside and finishes it that shot in terms of like the location of it the, the efforts from that are scored about one in every ten mm. um, whereas it looked like but I think the the man on the street would probably say like one in every two, to be honest. I, yeah. I think maybe one in every three, but it's one in every ten, and that that's where the surprising elements of expected goals comes into it. But overall, for the season, Liverpool have actually underperformed uh, expected goals. I think we're still underperforming even after this um, results. I think we've scored something like three goals less than expected. But before the Manchester United game, it was about seven goals less than expected. And that, I think all that kind of stems from the confidence that Liverpool have had or the lack of confidence. But now moving forward, if we can start being a bit more clinical with our chances, it's just a lot easier to pick up positive results. It really is. And <clears throat> the other thing as well, the old cliche of goals changing games. And your game plan is a lot easier to execute when you're in the lead. And an opponent's game plan has to change. Maybe not a 1-0, but certainly if you get to 2-0, everybody's game plan changes if they're 2-0 down. So in terms of trying to get in position to pick up points, and it's going to be a battle from here to the end of the season, just because we were this good on this day, there's not a guarantee we're going to be this good on every day, but we need to make sure that our lowest level is still a level good enough to, do, to win points. And part of that comes from structure, but part of that, as, as you're saying, comes from getting in front in games and being able to control them from there. Analyzing Anfield on the Blood Red Channel. Yeah, well, a lot of that as well comes from clean sheets, and what we are picking up those lately. Um, if your absolute flaw or, or the flaw of your performance is a clean sheet, you don't really need much for three points to come your way. So. You know, let's hope we can we continue with them. But just to round up then, top four, what are we saying? How are we feeling with this? Um, Better. Uh, <laughs> like, and I'm not even, I mean, I'm being a bit glib here. But uh, I, again, after the, after the game, I tweeted a stat and it showed the position of the table after the game away at Wolves where we lost 3-0 on the 4th of February and then after the game against Man United. So on the 4th of February, we were 10th. And we were 11 points of Newcastle in fourth. Now, we are fifth and three points off of Spurs in fourth. Now, that's halving the deficit in a month, mm. which shows you, considering how much up and down we've been over the course of that month, the graph has been going up. It's like we said a few months ago, baby steps. When you're that deep in the hole, we have to have baby steps to bring you out. And we've got to the edge of it. However, I have to say within that, those tables are slightly misleading because Brighton 
can still win all of their games in hand and go above us. So I think at the moment, Newcastle are probably on a little bit of a downward slump. Spurs are still very inconsistent. I'd say Brighton are probably going to be a bigger threat than other people realise for that top four spot. But I am now confident that we can get the job done. Yeah, well, I think at, at the minute, you, you probably asked to look on a coin flip, to be honest. I wasn't sure we beat Newcastle away. We did. I mean, they got a man sense off and it was that the initial first goal from Nunes was against the one of play. But we did get a 2-0 win in that game. That was a massive win for us. We've now hammered Manchester United. And on top of that, I think perhaps more importantly than anything, we're now kind of dealing with a full squad, really. Yeah. Um, Thiago, I think, is still out. And maybe Joe Gomez. But other than that, and Diaz, obviously. But they're all on the mend. They're all like round the corner from returning. Canati is now fully back. Jota. Um, so that is a major boost for Liverpool because when everybody's fit, the bottom line is, I've said this a lot of the, a lot of times, you're as good as your players, really. And Liverpool's players comfortably top two in the league uh, in terms of the squad. So that that's certainly going to help. On top of that, as you say, certain competitors declining a little bit. Newcastle falling off a little bit of a cliff. Um, and on top of that, I think at this stage of the season, it sounds a little bit yada. But, <laughs> <laughs> but we do have a just kind of the experience factor uh, when it comes to a running. It, the, the nerves can get to it. And I think you mentioned Brighton specifically there. You know, if Brighton are kind of like, I don't know, a, a point clear of Liverpool or whatever going into like the final two or three games. It, it, it you, It's hard not to think that it might play on their minds as like such a decisive period, whereas Liverpool, you know, played in Champions League finals and competed against Manchester City at the very summit. So I don't think it, the impact does that much. But if we, if we look at 538, it is basically a coin flip according to their model. They think Liverpool are going to finish with about 66 points. They think Spurs are going to finish with 65. And they think Brighton and Newcastle are going to finish with 64. So, in that sense, it's as close as you can possibly get it. Yeah. Um, but if Liverpool keep their players fit, I think, surprisingly, we can we can do it. Yeah. No, I think you're right. and Which would be wild, considering some of the depths we've been in. And like I said just a month ago. Um, but having players fit, having a fit squad, having a bench that can change games when you absolutely need an extra goal and this result isn't going to cut it, I think that might be the difference. You're right to cite the um, the muscle memory of previous run-ins as well that we have in our favour. I think, speaking about Brighton, um, we've kind of got similar schedules in as much as we've both got to play Chelsea, Manchester City and Arsenal and how each team do, and that might skew those coin flips a little bit. But we've got that one week at the start of April where we've got those three games in a row. It's Man City away, then Chelsea away, then Arsenal at home in the space of eight days. I think we can get five points from those games or unbeaten with at least one win, which is basically five points, and or more, then we're on. Yeah, you've got to throw in there as well that throughout the season, Liverpool have played in, in European competition. That's probably not going to be the case moving forward. Um, and Liverpool, like, playing one game a week, 
you, you would suggest Liverpool are probably going to win most games, to be honest. Whereas Brighton have played one game a week all season, mostly. Newcastle the same. So once that playing field is leveled for like the final 10 games or so, I think that will have a massive impact. Um, but yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how things go. Liverpool have got Southampton away on the final game of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't even know if that's good or bad, to be honest. <laughs> if, if, if they still have something to play for, that could be a tricky one. But I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll see where we go with that. But at least we have something to play for. At least we have something to talk about more. We're back in the game, mate. That's all it needed. And yeah. one more point as well about uh, this has been a mad, mad, mad season. If you think about it, this is so far we've beaten Manchester United, we've beaten Manchester City, um, <laughs> we've beaten Spurs, we've beaten Newcastle twice. So we've there's been a nine nil win and a seven nil win in there as well. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, and the seven one in Rangers, don't forget. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it's been a mad season. What that kind of proves is at our best, we can still compete with anyone. We just need to make sure that we're at our best enough times. Now, yeah. I think some of the decisions that Klopp made around the personnel uh, midweek, such as resting Robertson, resting Henderson, paid off against Manchester United. Those two in particular, I think they really benefited from it. I think we're going to have to be a little bit clever with some of our other players over the course of the next few games in and around that. Maybe bringing someone back and saying, I need you for this game rather than this game. But Klopp's got the squad to do it now, as we said. And yeah, momentum can be built from here, for sure. Yeah, well, coming up soon, we do have, I think it's a 17-day break before we have... Arsenal, City and Chelsea in the space of a week. So it's going to be really interesting to see how Klopp prepares for that week and how well we do in that week, considering we should have potentially a full squad. It's a massive week against proper rivals. So that's definitely one to look forward to. But before then, uh, the podcast could be a little bit dry. (laughs) (laughs) So with that in mind, we're probably going to do a QA. and a So I'm going to flag that now ahead of whether it'll be next week or the week after, I don't know. But um, I'll be sending out the newsletter for people who want to submit a question. So, um, yeah, we'll be doing a Q&A, Q&A either next week or the week after. So, if you want to ask... Um, well, our producers just said it'll be the week of the 23rd. Um, yeah, but Real Madrid next week, mate, we're already out. So, I don't think we'll be... Well- <laughs> I wouldn't be saying I wouldn't be saying that if it was an Anfield, but I don't know. We'll just we'll, we'll see. We'll see. We haven't got the, the, the thing about that, right? That's the beauty of a game like Man- Manchester beating Man United seven 0 Suddenly, <laughs> three goals down against Real Madrid doesn't sound quite as ridiculous as it did before. <laughs> I mean, it's still ridiculous. Don't get me wrong, but it's not quite. It's like it's like the um, Dumb and Dumber meme. You're telling me there's a chance. Yeah. Well, listen, if we get through, you can clip this and I, I, I will happily look like an idiot. But um, I can't see it, I'm honest. But yeah, next week or the week after, we will do a QA and uh, I will keep you informed as to when that is, through, probably through the newsletter above anything else. But yeah, Mo, thanks for joining us, mate. No worries. A pleasure as always. <laughs> and uh, we will see you next week. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to the Analyzing Anfield podcast on the Blood Red channel.